Morning, everybody. I am wondering how many of you are willing to admit to being known by something other than your real name, to being known by a nickname, perhaps amongst your family or amongst your friends. I'm not going to embarrass anyone by asking them what it is. I'm the only one up for embarrassment today. But if you are known amongst your family and friends by another name, a nickname, just raise your hand. Quite a few, but not as many as I thought. I kind of thought this was fairly common, but maybe just confirms for my children that my family is a little bit different to everyone else's. <laughs> I have had many, many nicknames over my lifetime. Growing up, all of my friends called me Woody. And to this day, there's a group of friends that still call me Woody because my surname was Wooden before I got married. And Australians seem to have problems with normal names. If you're Jones, you get Jonesy. If you're Smith, you get Smithy. And the Woodens all got Woody, so myself, my brother and my sister, we were all Woodies. My family uses nicknames all the time and most of them don't make any sense at all and we don't know how any of them came about really uh, but we all call one another by our nicknames and they're written in birthday cards. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the occasion, the nickname is still used. My father's name is Terry. His nickname probably makes the most sense. He is just known by everyone as Tez. His grandchildren call him Grandpa Tez. My mum is Duck. <laughs> My brother is Pudpud. <laughs> no one knows how that came about, but that's what we all call him. My sister and I share a nickname. And it doesn't matter that I'm now a pastor, they still use this nickname. We are both known as Mega Beast. <laughs> if we ring one another up, we go, hi, Mega Beast, how are you going? Oh, hi, Mega Beast, how are you? It's fine within the family, but it, it does raise some eyebrows when you're in the playground with your five-year-old niece and she's at the top of the shut slide shouting, Auntie Mega Beast, Auntie Mega Beast, look at me. Everyone's sort of looking at you. Along with Woody and Mega Beast, I have had Asparagus. That was another family nickname. No one knows why, no particular reason. Uh, some friends and my husband for quite a long time called me Lion because of this. In one workplace, I was known as Mum by my colleagues. At another workplace on my first day, they asked me, what would you like to be called? Is it Carolyn, Caroline, uh, Kaz? Caro or Carol? And I told them, I don't really mind, I'll answer to any of those. And so they picked Caro. And that's kind of stuck with me through to this day. Sometimes nicknames are not really appropriate. Why do Australians persist in calling all people with red hair blue? Well, apparently, it's due to the Irish. Uh, influx of Irish on the goldfield. Apparently they were very feisty and uh, known for starting fights, especially after they had been drinking a little bit. 
And so people would see a red-headed Irish man going past and they'd say, oh, there goes Blue. And the name has stuck and people with red hair to this day are still called Blue in Australia. Our youngest child was a completely uncoordinated toddler. She walked long, long before she ever should have walked. She had toes which slightly pointed inwards like this and legs which slightly bowed outwards like this. Made it very hard for her to walk, but she was determined. She had four older brothers and sisters to keep up with. And so most of the time she was hurtling out of control towards whatever pole or corner or concrete slab happened to be ahead of her. And so we called her Blunder. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone in the family called her Blunder. One time she was blundering around the kitchen, as she was prone to do while we were entertaining guests, TV remote in hand. Next thing we know, she's hurtling out of control towards an open esky in the middle of the kitchen floor. She ended up upside down in the esky with her feet sticking out and as we pulled her head out of the ice, we realised that she didn't have the TV remote in her hand anymore and it was in the water at the bottom of the esky. To be fair, it was our dog that taught her to walk. She used to uh, pull herself up on the dog and use the dog uh, like a walking frame to get around the house. She'd hold on to her hips and just make her way around the house. We had a very patient greyhound. But needless to say, our expectations for the athletic potential of Little Blunder were not very high. We would have been grateful if she could just make it through a week without any cuts or bruises or needs needing to go to a doctor to be patched up. How wrong we were. Little Blunder turned out to be highly athletic, to be very competitive, very coordinated, uh, and to win at most things that she turned her hand to. And we are never done driving her around to district and regional and whatever else comes after that, uh, of all the events that she, she gets into. It doesn't matter if it's cross country or athletics or team sports, she loves them all. So we don't call her Blunder anymore. The nickname has kind of passed away. But sometimes, in spite of nicknames being really inappropriate, they persist. Uh, my husband's father died when he was quite young, when my husband was quite young, uh, leaving his wife and these two young boys. Some years later, uh, Bruce's mother remarried and she married a man whose name was Ian. But because she also had a son who was called Ian, in order to differentiate the two, uh, the husband that she married became Big Ian and the son became Little Ian. And that name has persisted even though Little Ian now towers above Big Ian. Our apostle today, Thomas, suffers, I think, from a most inappropriate nickname. Actually, he has two nicknames. Uh, the first is recorded in the Bible, Didymus. It may well have been his surname, but it could have been a nickname. It means twin. So most likely he had a twin, or maybe his father had a twin. Um, 
But that twin is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. We don't know who he is. Second nickname is never mentioned in the Bible. Yet I am sure that most of you would have heard it at one time or another. It stems from a single incident recorded towards the end of John's Gospel. The risen Jesus has appeared to the disciples, but Thomas was not with them. The other disciples go and tell Thomas what's happened, that they've seen the risen Jesus. And Thomas replies, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus then, some days later, appears to them again. This time, Thomas is present and Jesus invites him to do just that, to see his hands, to reach out and put his hand into the wound on his side. Now, this particular incident has spawned a plethora of Christian artworks that feature Thomas poking his finger into holes in Jesus' side or into his hands, and it has earned him the nickname Doubting Thomas, which has stuck to this day. And it has spawned uh, a whole range of colloquialisms, and you will see it on uh, even modern-day movies and even children's books as well. The thing is, I'm not really sure that it's justified. If Thomas was a doubter, one thing is absolutely certain. Among the disciples, he had plenty of company. You might remember that it was the women who discovered the empty tomb after the resurrection of Jesus. They returned from the tomb to tell the disciples everything that they'd seen and experienced. And how did the disciples react? They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Later, the resurrected Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they too return to the eleven to tell them this good news of the resurrection. And while they're still talking about it, the resurrected Jesus himself comes and stands amongst them. Peace be with you, he says. And they are all convinced that simultaneously they've all just seen a ghost. Jesus says to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts raise in your minds? It is I, myself, he says, look at my hands and my feet, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Thomas was not alone in his doubts, all of the disciples had doubts. Neither was Thomas alone, it seems, in needing to see for himself the wounds of Jesus and to touch the flesh. According to Jesus, that's what all of them needed before they would believe. Matthew's Gospel ends with the Great Commission 
the disciples go to Galilee and gather at a mountain as instructed. Jesus appears there and Matthew records they worshipped him, but some doubted. All three of the synoptic gospels have recorded doubt amongst the eleven following the various resurrection appearances of Jesus. So it does seem more than a bit unfair that Thomas has been labelled seemingly forever as a doubter and the other apostles seem to be able to just slip quietly under the radar. After all, when we think of Peter, we think of him as a great man of God, leader amongst the disciples, leader in the early church. We don't call him ear-chopping Peter or denying Peter. So Thomas has my sympathies for his unfortunate nickname, but we must move on. In the remaining time that we have this morning, we're going to explore the biblical evidence concerning Thomas and try to decide for ourselves what sort of disciple he was and therefore what we can learn from his example. So if you have Bibles with you, you can skip over Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels, because they tell us very little about this man, Thomas. They record his name there amongst the lists of the disciples, but they don't give us any more information than that. You won't need to turn to the book of Acts either because there again his name is recorded amongst those who were waiting in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended to heaven but that's about all you'll find in the book of Acts concerning Thomas as well. We're going to be based in John's Gospel today and there you'll find Thomas appearing in four different places. One of those is just a basic uh, listing of his name amongst the disciples who decided to go back fishing after the resurrection of Jesus. We don't learn much from that story about Thomas. Um, But the other three um, do give us an insight into the character of this man. First time we encounter Thomas is when Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is sick. Now, after a bit of an intentional delay on the part of Jesus, he finally announces that he's going back to Judea, where Lazarus was. And the disciples protest, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going to go back there? Now, after some brief teaching, Jesus tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep and that he's going to go there to wake him up. And the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. So he tells them more plainly, Lazarus is dead. And he tells them that he's glad for their sake that he wasn't there so that they will believe, which implies that at the moment they're not believing. Let us go to him, he says. So these disciples know three things at this stage. They know that Lazarus is dead. They know that last time they went there, 
last time Jesus went there, the Jews tried to stone him. And they know that now he wants to go back into what they perceive as the danger zone. So understandably, he's not being bowled over with enthusiasm from these disciples, as well as being labelled uh, a doubter from this particular incident, Thomas is often tagged a pessimist. Again, I think it's a bit unfair. All of the disciples were pessimists in this situation. All of them were convinced that Jesus was heading for a repeat performance stoning that was probably more likely to be more effective than the last one he'd received there. All of them thought he was going to die. Only one of them was brave enough to speak up in this situation and it is not who we might think. It is not Peter, the leader amongst them. It is not the one known as the beloved disciple. It's the one that we label the doubter. It's Thomas. But his words here don't sound even a little bit doubtful to me. He turns to the other disciples and he says to them, let us also go that we might die with him. If his master is going to die, Thomas is willing to die with him. Sounds like a leader speaking to, to me. Sounds like someone who has absolutely no doubt at all about who he's following. Sounds like someone who's completely devoted to Jesus. Sounds like someone who's decisive. Sounds like someone who's brave. Strange that none of those monkeys have stuck. We don't call him courageous Thomas or devoted Thomas or decisive Thomas. He's stuck with doubting Thomas. But if his master is going to die, Thomas is willing to die with him. Better that, that than to have to live separated from Jesus. He's not concerned that the situation seems hopeless. He's not concerned that it might be dangerous. If Jesus is going, he wants to go too. And he doesn't care what the consequences might be. Next time that we encounter Thomas is just a few chapters later in John's Gospel. John chapter 14. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his own death. And again, Thomas is faced with the prospect of being separated from Jesus, this one he loves so dearly. And the prospect of that is more than he can bear. He would have happily died with Jesus. He doesn't want to be left without him. Now Simon Peter has already asked Jesus where he's going towards the end of the previous chapter, chapter 13. 
And Jesus' response was, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you'll follow later. So when Jesus then tells them, you know the way to the place that I'm going, you can almost hear Thomas's mind working. Because if he can't follow now, but he can later, he wants to be sure that he knows how to get there. Because if Jesus is going to be there, he wants to be there too. Now it's obvious to us that Thomas doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, but let's be fair to him because we live on this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb and we have a well-developed sense of heaven and of eternity. Thomas was not on this side of the cross and the empty tomb and clearly he didn't have that same sense of heaven and eternity because he seems to think if only he knew the way he could get himself there later. And so Thomas speaks up on behalf of the group and he asks the question which I think probably all of them wanted to know the answer to. Lord, he says, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And this question prompts from Jesus his most profound and most quoted answer. Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you're like Thomas sitting here today and you've got questions, ask them. Jesus handled Thomas very gently with his questions. You might be wondering why this young man here needed to get into an enormous bath and be dunked under. Why go to all that effort of getting wet this morning? What does that all mean? Don't be afraid to ask your questions because it is in asking questions that we learn. And in Thomas's case, the answer to his question has brought new insights not only for him, but for generations of people up to this day as we read the words that have been recorded for us in the Bible. Jesus' answer was not only profound, but it was, all, it was also probably the most controversial of all of his answers. He didn't say that he would show us the way or that he would teach us some truth or give us a certain kind of life. He said that he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. Likewise, he didn't say that he was one of many forms of ways or that he was one source of the truth or that he was one kind of many different kinds of lives. He said he is the way and is the truth and is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And it sounds exclusive because it is 
exclusive. And many people today find that exclusivity difficult to comprehend and accept. But we need to keep in mind these two things. Firstly, the right that Jesus had to make such an exclusive claim. Only he could make such an exclusive claim because only he was God. God in human flesh. That's what gives him the right to claim that he is the way. If you had known me, Jesus goes on to say, you would have known my father also. To know Jesus is to know God because as God incarnate, he is the perfect representation of God. Now these disciples had spent around about three years with Jesus. They would have known him pretty well. They would have seen him do many amazing things. They would have lived day-to-day -day life with him. They would have heard him teaching and preaching and seen the miracles that he had performed. They had watched and learned from him. And yet there was still a sense that they hadn't seen everything yet. Only at the cross would the full extent of God's love be revealed to them. And only in the empty tomb would the full extent of God's power be known to them. That's why Jesus goes on to say to Thomas, and from now on, you know him and you have seen him. Not that he hadn't seen Jesus and known Jesus before, but the full extent of God's love and God's power would only be revealed at the cross and at the empty tomb. These things would stand as the ultimate proof of Jesus' claim to be the way, the truth and the life. And the second thing that is important for us to keep in mind is that whilst the claim is exclusive, the invitation is not. All who come through Jesus, regardless of their background, will be welcomed and received by him. What a gift Thomas gave us in his question. The next time we encounter Thomas, his worst fears have eventuated. Jesus died and he, Thomas, did not die. All of the disciples were grieving. All of them would have been in shock. And so many of them gathered together. People often do that times of grief and shock, but for whatever reason, Thomas was not with them. Why he wasn't there, we can only speculate because the Bible doesn't say. Perhaps his grief was just too great and he needed time alone. 
It was, after all, Thomas who understood that it would be better to die with Jesus than to live separated from him. Perhaps that was weighing on his mind as he was trying to figure out, well, what is the way? Where is the way? How can I get to where he's gone? Perhaps these are things he just had to work through on his own. And I can understand that. Whatever the reason, Thomas wasn't there with the others when the resurrected Jesus appeared to them. He didn't get to see the scars on his hands and on his side. Evidently, that is what it had taken for the others to believe. And that's all he wanted to. Thomas doesn't doubt their experience with Christ. He just wants to see for himself. And in his mercy, Jesus gives him that opportunity. Eight days later, the disciples have gathered again. The doors were shut and locked as they were the last time. But this time, Thomas is with them when Jesus appears among them. Jesus was gentle with Thomas. No one had to grab Jesus by the hand and drag him over to Thomas and say, look, can you just show him he didn't get to see last time? Jesus simply looked at Thomas and invited him to see and touch his wounds. He tells him to stop doubting and to believe. Interestingly, nowhere in the biblical account does it ever say that Thomas did that. There's no record of him poking around his finger in any of Jesus' wounds, in spite of all the artwork which would tell us that he did. Personally, I don't think there was any need for him to have done that. Personally, I think one look at Jesus standing there before him is all that it would have taken for this disciple to make what is at least in my mind the greatest declaration of any of the disciples. My Lord and my God, he says. In that instance, I think Thomas got it. How can Jesus be the way and the truth and the life only because he is God, my Lord and my God. Now all of us, I think, are a little bit like Thomas and a little bit like the other disciples in that we all like hard evidence. Their doubts faded quickly when faced with the resurrected Jesus. But some of ours can be a little bit trickier to budge. They could see and touch the risen Christ. We cannot, at least not yet, anyway. Jesus knows that you and I must believe even though we do not see. And he promises that we will be blessed because of it. We've been left the written testimony of those who were there and who did see and who did touch the risen Christ. 
and their record has been carefully preserved and handed down over the years. What we've been left with, our scriptures, are some of the most historically reliable documents on earth. Many have tried to discredit their historical reliability and none have yet succeeded. Near the end of the gospel, we are told that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas's deep love for Jesus, his questions, his doubts, and ultimately his great declaration of faith, these things and so much more have been recorded for us. If you have doubts or if you have questions, don't leave them unanswered. Do like Thomas did. Find out for yourself. Investigate the evidence that has been left behind. It can stand up to your scrutiny. It has stood up to the scrutiny of many, many before you, including many who have been set on discrediting it, and yet it still stands. Investigate the evidence, ask your questions. Blessed, says Jesus, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. To round out our story or our picture of Thomas for today, I just want to close with something of what happened to him after Pentecost, so after the coming of the Holy Spirit. There is a considerable amount of historical evidence that suggests that of all the disciples, Thomas travelled the furthest with the gospel, taking the gospel all the way to India. And there are churches in the south of that country that can trace their roots to the beginning of the church age. And tradition holds that they were founded by Thomas. The strongest traditions hold that he was killed with a spear. He was run through with a spear at St Thomas Mount in Chennai in AD 72. His body was interred in Mylapore, which is a central district in that, that part of Chennai. And to this day, you can still visit the tomb of the mighty man of God, this man with the most unfortunate nickname at the St. Thomas Basilica in Chennai in India. Let's pray together. Lord, we remember that deep love that Thomas had for you. He was prepared even to die with you. We thank you for his questions. 
We thank you for the tender way that you accommodated his need to see for himself. You are the only way, our Lord and our God. Lord, there may well be some here today who truly have doubts. Would you accommodate them like you accommodated Thomas? Would you reveal yourself to them that they too might declare you to be my Lord and my God? Amen.